Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Thanks for tuning in to the Performance Anxiety Podcast, a proud member of the Pantheon Podcast Network. My name is Mark, and I'm your host. This show is all about Brian Coleman. Who's Brian Coleman, you ask? Well, Brian is a writer and a musician, and he's one of those guys who's been everywhere, met everyone, done everything. At the age of 15, he played his demos for Danny Fields in his apartment with Edie Sedgwick, Nico, and Jim Morrison. He was also hanging out at Max's Kansas City and the scene at that same time. He worked with some great artists early in their career like Vernon Reed and discovered Mark Knopfler in a movie theater box office. Brian's just released a new album called Winter Clothes, and like he says, he wears his influences on his sleeve. You can definitely hear them on this album. Check it out wherever you get music or on his website, briancoleman.com. Now grab a drink, get some snacks, because you're about to hear some incredible stories from Brian Coleman on performance anxiety. Great. Well, this is Brian Coleman. You're listening to Performance Anxiety. I've got a new record called Winter Clothes coming out on Sunnyside Records September 11th. And... Uh, you can hear it wherever fine music is heard uh, or at my website, www.briancoleman.com or right here on Performance Anxiety. And now... Where, where are you, by the way? Where, where are we speaking? Where are you speaking from? I'm in Winchester, Virginia. Oh, okay. Home of Patsy Cline. I didn't know that. Yeah. I wanted to thank you so much for coming on. I... It's really awesome to talk to you. I've been reading some of your articles and listening to the albums, and I'm just, I'm so happy to talk to you. Well, likewise, so. Well, I want to find out, first of all, uh, what got you into music to begin with? You're from New York City, right? Uh, Is it born and raised? Born and raised, yeah. Born here, um, man, you know, the radio. Okay. You know, God, God bless podcasts. God bless the radio. You know, I grew up uh, in a very, uh, actually a very creative in a funny way, but a very straight home. Okay. And um, I wasn't an only child, but my, my siblings are so much older. I mean, I had two half brothers who, uh, who were married with kids before I was born. Oh, really? Um, and a sister who was in college and... Um, so I grew up like an only child and literally when I heard the radio and I, you know, I got a little transistor radio and I heard the radio when I was about 10 years old and my life just totally changed. 
And first of all, I was afraid to ever go to sleep because I didn't realize that the DJs were playing records. Uh, oh, wow. It's, it's not that I thought that the artists were there in the studio, but I didn't realize that, you know, first of all, I didn't know that the stuff was for sale. I thought uh, that, you know, they would play something and then it was over. Oh, uh, never to be heard again. Well, it was sort of like TV, you know, sort of like they're, they're playing a song and now they're going to play something else, but they may never get back to that. Right. Okay. And um, it was only when I got to be about 11 or 12 that I realized like, oh, there are records. You can buy records. You can bring them home. <laughs> and, um, you know, the, the um, I mean, I was, in, I was obsessed with records before the Beatles came along. Okay. But, but then when I heard the Beatles, like it, it changed everything because it was a sense of community and it was the sense of, um, of inclusion. You know, it felt like they were welcoming you into a world that not that they owned, but that they had helped create. And oh. if you wanted to, you could be there with them. Oh, wow. And, uh, one of the things that, that, uh, was really important for me, um, was we lived on, um, 58th street. Uh, on the east side and around the corner, uh, my dad would take me once a week to this uh, famous place called Jimmy's Shoe Repair and we'd get a shoe shine. Okay. And Ed Sullivan lived across the street from that at a place called Delmonico's. Oh, oh and yeah. My dad knew Ed Sullivan from way back. I mean, they weren't friends, but they sort of, you know, were acquaintances. Okay. And so we'd get our shoe shine sitting next to Ed Sullivan. Oh, wow. And... Uh, Ed Sullivan realized, you know, that, you know, there I am like 12 years old, totally in love with, you know, rock and roll and with the Beatles. And, you know, the guy was such an asshole. He took such great pleasure in trying to demean them and knock them down for me. He'd, he'd be reading the paper and he'd look over at me and go, you know, the Beatles, they're over. They're done. Oh. And, then, and then he'd explain that, you know, when, you know, John had talked about them being bigger than Jesus or they had inadvertently snubbed uh, Fernando Marcos, Marcos in uh, the Philippines. Mm -hmm. uh, or, you know, he had some rumor that Ringo had been found with, a, you know, a hat check girl in the back of a club. And he was always like, trust me, they're done. You'll never hear of them again. Oh, my gosh. But what was really liberating for me was. I was hearing this guy who was, you know, who was on television and who was like my, my, um, my window into a particular world. And I would listen to him and I would sort of, I wouldn't say anything because I was a really polite kid, mm -hmm. but I would sort of go in my head, you're wrong. Because <laughs> like, he had this, this thing where he would just, he would have a newspaper in his lap and he would flick the newspaper like he'd flick his finger against the newspaper as if by doing that he had just knocked the Beatles like off the shelf and uh, onto the floor. Wow. And I, I just sort of went, you know, they're bigger than you are. You don't understand that. This is, they, they've created a world and you don't get to play in it. Yeah, exactly. And so the thing is that was really empowering to hear, to hear him like denigrate them and realize he didn't know something and that I did. Yeah. That was, that was very powerful. And yeah. so I, from that moment and from before that, but from that moment, 
you know, music was everything to me. And um, pretty much all my life has been about collecting music, writing about music, and, and then eventually, you know, performing and playing music. And I guess I always felt like I was a kid with my face up against the window. Like, I wasn't really good enough to be inside, but I could watch. Right. I know that feeling. <laughs> yeah. And, and somehow, I don't know if I really got better, but the world changed and the, the situation changed and it allowed me to come in. And there was nothing that I did to get inside. I sort of looked up at some point and I was inside. Oh, wow. And the thing is, I hadn't done anything to deserve that. <laughs> you know, I wish I could say, yeah, man, I really studied. And I, ju I just wound up, I think, in, in the world that we're in, it's all about desire. You know, if you love something, eventually it gives itself to you. Maybe not in the way that you want, maybe not in the way that you need, but it, it somehow accepts you. And it allows you room to play. Oh, wow. That's fantastic. I think you're absolutely right, too. And what, what did your father do? Because you mentioned that he knew Ed Sullivan. And I also read the, the piece you did about Cole Porter. So right. like, how your father knew him as well. So what, what was he doing that he knew all these people? You know, my dad came from you. We were talking about... Um, your kid with like an old Zenith and repairing radios and yes. electronic, you know, my, my dad came from a time when if you could, if you could uh, repair a radio, they'd sort of say, Hey, that's pretty good. You want to fix this TV? <laughs> you know? There wasn't this sense of specialization. Right. Yeah. And, um, my, my dad was known within his community for being, like, honest, really good with figures. Okay. So he, he wound up, he didn't have any background in entertainment, but during the Depression, my dad was born, you know, in the 1890s. He oh, was wow. in his 60s when I was born. Wow. So my dad, during the Depression... Uh, was asked if he'd run the Roxy Music Hall. The Roxy was, uh, I mean, apart from being the namesake of Roxy Music, the Roxy Music Hall was the, the biggest vaudeville house in New York. Okay. And it's where, it's where um, everyone, you know, the Marx Brothers and Abbott and Costello and Bob Hope and all sorts of people would, would do their act. Okay. And... Um, it had been really badly mismanaged and they brought him in essentially to see if he could keep it from going bankrupt. Oh, wow. Okay. And so he did. And one of the ways he did that was lowering the prices and also, um, creating a bond with the audience like during times, cause during the depression banks would sometimes like have runs on money and they would close. Okay. Yeah. And so when banks would close and people didn't have cash, my dad had a policy that anyone who wanted to could come in and put their name on the list with the idea that they promised to come back like a few days later when the banks were open and pay. Oh, wow. Like, you want to come now? Okay, come on in and just, you know, bring your 50 cents, you know, 
a couple of days from now. And he said no one ever stiffed him. Everyone like really appreciated that. That's amazing. So he got to like that world. And he got to know people in that world. And I think one of the things that um, people liked about him was that, you know, he didn't have any ambitions to sing or dance or write a show. He just wanted to see that the show went on properly. So, so we grew up, I grew up with all sorts of people from that world coming into our home, you know, as, as friends or as acquaintances. And uh, I, yeah, I didn't know what they did. And then in a lot of cases, I didn't care. But, oh, yeah. uh, you know, I look at it now and sort of go, oh, shit. You know, um, you know one of the things that, uh, <laughs> um, that's pretty wild is um, once, once, they, once the, the depression was over and uh, he was no longer uh, doing the Roxy, uh, he was doing a lot of government work. Okay. Um, he was sort of a low-level diplomat. Uh, and oh, wow. He'd, he'd go over to the Philippines to uh, try to open trade or to Egypt. Wow. But he had gotten really fascinated by, you know, by show business. You know, it got into, it got into his blood. And so my mother during, uh, my mother before they married had been the editor or co-editor of uh, a little magazine that was sort of like the Rolling Stone of Broadway. Oh, back cool. in, in the 1930s. It was called Stage. Okay. And it was all gossip about, because, uh, you know, Broadway was the rock and roll of that, that era. That's true. So one of her jobs was reading scripts and looking at plays because, you know, in those days, they had to make decisions like a month or two months in advance. So she'd have to read scripts and sort of go, hmm, I bet this show is going to be really successful. And so in February, they'd have to choose what would be on the cover in April. And if she chose wrong and they put a show that had already folded, they were, you know, they were up the shitter. Yeah. Wow. So, you know, she basically had a good nose for what was going to be popular. So, you know, at a certain point, my dad sort of went, well, why don't we get involved with uh, producing some shows for Broadway? And, uh, you know, my mother sort of went, well, how do we do that? And he went, no, 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 I'm not going to tell you what to, what to, you know, back. You read some scripts and if you think a show is going to be good, I'll read the financials and uh, we'll put some money in there. Wow, that's fantastic. At that time, you know, you didn't put very much money in. You know, you put in like $5,000 and you were, you know like a maybe 10 or 15% owner of the show. And if, if the show succeeded, you made your money back in like three weeks. Jeez. So they, they wound up having like a very good run of shows that they, uh, they helped put on. And one of the big ones was, you know, my mother found these short stories in the Saturday evening post about uh, servicemen in uh, Indonesia during the second world war. Oh, and cool. she and she optioned them and uh, brought them to Richard Rogers and said, you know, this could be a really cool show. And uh, that became South Pacific. Wow. And oh. so what I'm so right now I'm looking at the piano that he wrote most of that music on. Oh, my gosh. Jeez. So, you know, 
Man, I, I've got, I've got, uh, I've got history right there. <laughs> you should have your own podcast. So, well. <laughs> when, <laughs> when did you start? Uh, oh, actually, before I even get into that, what came first for you? The desire to play music or writing? Um, you know, I always was a writer. Okay. Always. I mean, before I knew how to actually write, when my mother was, was home in, in the evenings, I would dictate stories to her. Oh, wow. You know, when I was like five years old, six years old. <laughs> and um, it's like, okay, it's my turn. <laughs> yes. Um, but, um, you know, um, okay, I need you to guide me a little bit. Sure, sure. I, I, can, I can give you, I can run through a story, but it's going to go on for about five or six minutes. Is, is that going to be okay? I have no time limit. Okay. So... Basically, I was obsessed, totally obsessed with rock and roll. And I didn't know that there were other people who were listening. Okay. And, you know, Rolling Stone didn't exist, or if it did, it, it wasn't on my radar. Right. So I was about 14 years old, and I saw a book that had just come out in a store called The Rock Encyclopedia. Okay. By this Australian writer named Lillian Roxon. All right. And it's like, it's it's the rock encyclopedia. It's gonna like gonna be my Bible. So I tell you everything you need to know. Home. Exactly. So as a fourteen year old, I was you know I was pretty much of a know it all because <laughs> I grew up in New York City. I had Murray the K helping me. Right. Exactly. <laughs> so you know I didn't sleep at night. I listened to all of this stuff. So I read the book cover to cover, and I. Her writing was beautiful and she understood like where music came from and she understood like the energy behind the sound, oh, but she cool. got all the names and all the facts wrong. Oh, and you know, as a 14 year old, I was a total train spotter, <laughs> and, you know, as an example, um, she had John Stewart, who was one of the Kingston trio yes. as a member of the Buffalo Springfield. Oh my and I'm gosh. Like, no, 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 no. Wow. <laughs> So being a, uh, being a dumb kid, I, I wrote out 30 pages of corrections. Oh my God. <laughs> and I mailed them to her. <laughs> and, you know, I mean, most people, I mailed them to her care of her publisher. And most people getting that would have looked at it and gone, yeah. stupid jerk. <laughs> and they would have like torn it up and thrown it away. <laughs> she was really charmed that there was this kid out there who, had nothing better to do than know this stuff and who loved this stuff as much as she did. Wow. So she, she called me up and uh, said, why don't you edit the second edition with me? Oh my gosh. Now, there was no second edition, Oh. but she became my fairy godmother and wow. she knew everybody. And she started taking me to the back room of Max's Kansas city oh, wow. to Steve Paul's the scene she started taking me around to clubs and basically she, she was a princess in this amazing world. Everyone knew her, everyone loved her. And wow. so people didn't necessarily like know me or love me, but they let me in. And then the dangerous thing happened. You know, I got to be 15. I got a guitar. I learned how to play maybe four chords, maybe five. <laughs> And as one does, you know, 
you're 15, you, you've got a guitar, you have these chords. I started writing songs. Right. And now who am I going to play them for? I can't show them to my parents. Oh, and, God, no. And I didn't really have friends who were, you know, into, into music. So I called Lillian and sort of went, Lillian, I've, I've written these songs. Isn't that great? Oh, my God. There was this long silence and she was like, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That's really great. Oh, I've got to play them for you. And she went, no, 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 no. Don't do that because I won't know if they're any good. And she was then really honest and said, listen, I don't really know music. What I know is the scene. Mm. And, but why don't I take you down and you can play them for my friend Danny. He knows, he knows music and he knows the scene. He'll know if they're any good. And I'm like, sure. <laughs> so Danny turned out to be this guy named Danny Fields. Okay. Danny was her best friend. And Danny, Danny's still alive and he's still like the hippest guy in the room. <laughs> So he, he went to Harvard at 15, and when wow. he came out, uh, he became part of Andy Warhol's factory scene. Oh. And then he got hired by Electra to be sort of their house hippie. Oh, wow. And so he was doing publicity for all their bands, but also just to keep him you know, involved, they let him sign people. So he signed the MC5. Oh, wow. He signed Iggy and the Stooges. Oh, um, And then later on, he wound up, after he'd lost his job and it was a different era, he wound up discovering the Ramones and managing and producing them. Oh, but, wow. So at this point, it's like, you know, about 1969. And we go down to his apartment. And it's in the West Village, and it's spooky. It's really dark. <laughs> and there are no lights on, but there are candles everywhere. Oh, geez. And do you know who Edie Sedgwick was? Yes. Okay, so Edie Sedgwick was Danny's roommate. Oh, my now, God. Danny was, Danny was very gay, so there was nothing romantic happening. They just happened to, you know, share the place together. Okay. She was in her bra and her panties. And she's cutting out pictures from Vogue magazine oh by candlelight. <laughs> Meantime, on the couch, Jim Morrison is passed out drunk. Oh, my God. And in the bedroom, the door is locked. And Nico has locked herself in the bedroom because she's scared of Jim Morrison. Oh my Jim Morrison can't even sit up. But God. Nico is like banging on the door every 10 minutes going, don't let him in. He is a monster. Don't oh. let him in. <laughs> Oh, and, my you know, God. I walk into this with this, you know, $30 nylon string guitar. And it's like, oh, shit. You know, I'm, I'm like yes. worried that like the stones are in the kitchen, like yes. making sandwiches or something. <laughs> and, uh, you know, Lillian introduces me and Danny has this look. He's totally stoned. He has this look like, oh, boy, songs. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Play me a song. Like the last thing he wanted to do was hear. Yeah. Like, you know. But, you know, I dutifully got out the guitar and I started this, you know, I, and all of my songs sounded exactly alike. Um, but I had this, I had a good song and uh, it had a line in it somewhere. It's not a bad line, um, but it's a bad song. I had this line in it. You know, now hold me like a promise, like a moth upon your tongue. Ooh. And Edie Sedgwick throws her scissors, you know, against the floor and goes, yuck, moths are yucky. I hate moths. Oh, you know, stop that. <laughs> ah. 
And of course, I stop and Danny looks over and goes, no, that's the first good line you've had. I like that. Play me another. And, you know, I go, oh, but but this one isn't finished. And he goes, I know. Oh, "Oh, okay. But, you know, that was, you know, baptism by fire. No Um, kidding. But, um, you know, I I survived and uh, and no one basically signed me and no one, you know, no one wanted anything to do with me, (laughs) but they didn't throw me out on the street. That's hey, that's that's more than I probably would have gotten for songs I'd written at the age of fifteen. That's not bad. And you know, I I never got to meet Jim Morrison, but I got to watch him sleep. Yeah. Um, (laughs) (laughs) And you got to hear Nico yelling. I got to hear Nico came out and sort of looked at me and looked around, then went back in the bedroom. But um (laughs) He's still here. You know, the the thing that I have to explain when I tell some of these stories is the world back then was so small. And like these people were, were heroes to me, but they could walk down the street. They could, you know, go in and buy groceries and nobody would notice. Right. Wow. So, you know, the fact that they were musicians was sort of like, well, okay, you know, we'll still let you buy a beer, but you know, (laughs) um, but they weren't special. You know, it was only much later that the world changed and suddenly people that were important to, you know, to my growing up and to my spirit and my education became celebrities, you know, before then they were artists and they were artists in the same way that, you know, Ernest Hemingway was an artist, you know, he wasn't stopped going down the street. I mean, maybe he was when he was, you know, older, but he, he was just a guy that uh, had a typewriter. You know, in this day and age with, where everything's plastered all over social media and it, it's hard to, to really think of the world that way. But, but the, world was, the world was very open and everyone, I think in a way it's still the case. If you have an idea, if you have like a vision of some sort and it's not simply about your betterment your, you know, your wealth or, you know, your ambition, but you have an idea, almost anyone will come out of the woodwork to help you once, maybe twice, but but usually once. If you've got something that you want to do and someone thinks it's, it's interesting, you can get through to anybody. You really can. You know, I, I will testify to that because in addition to having you on this podcast, I've had some other amazing people telling me some amazing stories. And it's, it's true. People were definitely willing to, to share, in, in my case, share some amazing stories and, and just talk about stuff. And uh, I, I've been amazingly blessed and, and incredibly appreciative of the people that have been on this show. So it's, you're absolutely right. I, I will agree with you 100% on that. There's also this weird thing when you get close to the center of energy, when you get close to the fire, it stops being about mine or yours and it becomes about the actual spirit itself. You know, I I don't mean to sound flaky, but, you know, one of the things that, you know, I, I sort of just to be near the energy and to be around music, I wound up producing records for a little while and being in the studio 
And when you actually are with people who are trying to make something new or trying to create something that doesn't exist, they're not trying to follow a formula, but do something that's really original. What's really exciting is the sense that you're part of a creation process and it's not yours. It's not theirs. It's just this sense of light and energy and, and power. Yeah. And it has its own, you know, it follows its own form and it follows its own logic. And for that moment that it's in, you know, in transition, nobody owns it. You know, it's, it's there, it's there for the taking and, uh, God, that's beautiful. I can't express, I can't add anything to that because that, that that's exactly right. That's exactly how I, how I feel when I'm, when I'm able to, to get a, a good thing going with, with this show, like, like we are right now, it's, it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's, I can't describe it. I don't have the words to describe it. So I'm glad you do. You know, I mean, I've been really lucky in that, you know, some people have fallen onto my lap wanting, wanting me to, to be part of their process. And, uh, you know, I produced some of the original uh, sessions for Lucinda Williams. Oh, wow. Um, and, um, you know, a, a friend of mine was work, doing some work with her and called me up and said that uh, she was going to come to New York and, and they were going to do a demo. And, uh, you know, I, I was in that world. I was doing demos and my demos were, you know, sort of, you know, 50 bucks. You know, you find a studio that would let you in and you get a couple of friends and you put something down and, you know, maybe $60 would change hands. Right. And this guy said, yeah, we, we're going to do a demo for Lucinda. And uh, I think we can spend $10,000. Wow. No, 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 no. You don't do a demo for $10,000. You do a record. Yeah. And he's like, really? Could you do a record for $10,000? No, I've never done anything like that before. Oh. But I, of course I went, sure. Of course <laughs> I could. He goes, okay. You want to be the producer? Yeah. And- <laughs> We'll be right back after a word from our sponsors. Basically, I, you know, I put a band together for, I put a great band together for her. But again, it was just, you know, calling people up and getting her in the studio. And there were these moments when it was just incandescent. You know, she really didn't communicate well. But when she played and when she sang, there was the spirit there that just took over the room. And uh, I talked Taj Mahal into coming in and doing a duet with her. Oh, wow. And uh, he didn't know who she was, and he definitely didn't know who I was. <laughs> and at that point, we'd spent all of our money. So I tracked him down at a little hotel and sort of went, you know, sir, excuse me, but there's this artist, and I think you'd sound really good with her. Oh, my and God. And he just, he just sort of went, uh-huh. He said... <laughs> And I'd love to have you with her, and we could pay you $75. And he went, uh-huh. <laughs> and, went, and it would have to be tomorrow morning at 11 o'clock at a studio called Noise New York, above a, a little restaurant called The Meatball. And he's like, uh-huh. <laughs> and uh, there was this long silence, and uh, he finally went, you know what a National Steel guitar is? And I went, yeah. 
okay, you get me a pre-1950 National Steel guitar, and I'll be there, and I'll, I'll do this for you for $75. And he hung up. <laughs> so there was no way I could negotiate. I couldn't sort of go, what about if it was from 19? I was like, yeah. okay. Yeah. I called everybody I knew, and nobody. I mean, a couple of people had National Steel guitars, but they were, like, you know, from the 60s. Yeah. Um, nobody had anything like this, and I had to get this. And uh, I walked into a little music store, and I sort of knew them, but not really, yeah. called, called a Matt Umanoff's on Bleecker Street. Okay. And uh, just sort of went, you got a pre-1950 uh, National? And, yeah, it's in the window. And he took it out, and, and he said, I really need this for a session tomorrow. And he was like, okay. And I was like, no, 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 I mean, I need to borrow this. And he was like, okay. I said, I mean, do you want me to put some money down? He went, no, just bring it back. Oh, my gosh. And I, you know, man, the, the guy saved my ass. Wow. And I grabbed the guitar, and the next day I was there at 10 o'clock, setting up the studio and getting everything ready. And I had the uh, National Steel on top of the piano. And at 11 o'clock sharp, Taj Mahal walks in. Big guy. Oh. Huge. And he's in a trench coat. And he's got like a fedora on. <laughs> and he just looks at me and goes, where is it? <laughs> I, I take him to the piano and he picks the guitar up and he looks at it. He goes, uh-huh. That's, that's 1949. Uh-huh. Uh, and then he takes off his coat, doesn't play it. He just wanted to bust my balls. Oh, my God. He just wanted, it's like if I'm going to get him to come and play, he was going to, you know, he was going to make me work for it. Right. But then he, he and Lucinda did this track called Going Back Home. Uh, it's an old blues. And it's one of the best things she's ever done. And it's wow. just the two of them. And it just, if you don't have it, I'll send it to you. You need it. It's uh, oh yeah, I would. It, it just gives me chills. Yeah, I would love. To. I'm not. I'm not super familiar with Listen to Williams. I mean, I, I'm familiar with who she is, and I've definitely heard her stuff, but I, I don't have that one at all. So I would take you up on that. You need it. You need it in your life. I. Um, it's one of those things, like I was saying, where at that moment it wasn't Lucinda and it wasn't Taj and it wasn't me. It was just this energy that filled the room and it was like you know it was like the holy spirit yeah reminds me of, of uh, somebody I did want to ask you about because she fascinates me and she fascinates a really good friend of mine as well and I'm, I've been fascinated for a long time about Sandy Denny. I know you, you did some work with her and, and, and you spent some time with her. How did that come about? You know, again, that was um, it was because it was a time when you could walk up to anybody and she wasn't a star. She was just an amazing singer. Yeah. And uh, I was in London. I had a, uh, I had a summer job 
when I was uh, a senior in high school. I got a summer job with a, a really sort of makeshift down at heels documentary film company. Okay. And, you know, a friend of a friend of a friend knew somebody who right. worked there yeah. and they were willing to take me on uh, as an intern. Cool. And, you know, it, it sounded great. But, uh, you know, the, the reality was by the time I got to London and by the time I got there, they were doing so badly. They had stopped making films and they had turned into like a rental agency. Oh, wow. And so what they wanted me to do was essentially carry boxes from one part of London to another and then come back and write in a notebook, you know who had which microphone and, and what uh, camera was where it oh. was, it was, it was really grunt work. Yeah. And it was really soul destroying because I'd, I'd gone over with the idea that I was going to learn about film editing and I was going to learn about production and nothing, no, nothing was happening. I've been there. But, uh, before, before I went, you know, I hadn't, I hadn't written about music at all, except maybe for my high school paper. Okay. But I, but uh, again, you know, all roads lead to Lillian Roxon. Lillian sort of said, you know, you're going to be in London. Why don't you tell some of these uh, music papers that you could do interviews for them? So I was sort of scared to call Rolling Stone, but yeah. I knew there was this magazine called Crawdaddy. Okay. And um, they had an office in a basement on 13th Street and 6th Avenue. Okay. And so I, I just sort of like tiptoed over and I you know, knocked on the door and there were these, you know, sort of goofy guys, like real hippies who were, you know, who were basically, both of them had long droopy mustaches and they were really stoned and they're trying to hide whatever drugs they had. <laughs> and, you know, and I'm there, this, you know, like geeky kid, you know, sort of like, Hey, hi, how are you? <laughs> you have a rock magazine. <laughs> I, I I love rock and roll. And they were like, oh, okay. Yeah. And I said, listen, I'm I'm going to London and um maybe I could write some stories for you. Maybe I could like do some interviews. And I said, Well, have you ever done anything? And I brought these uh clips from uh you know from my school paper. I'd written about uh Paul Butterfield and I'd written something about Bob Dylan and something for John Fahey. Oh yeah. And, uh, you know, they sort of looked at them and went, yeah, yeah, the dessert, these are pretty good, yeah. The only thing is, um, we've got this guy, Barry Miles, and he's our London editor, and he knows everybody. Now, Barry Miles actually knows everybody. He, um, <laughs> he was like best friends with uh, Paul McCartney, and he, oh, he and Paul set up something called the Indica Bookstore which okay. is famous for being the place where John and Yoko met. Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, and it was, a, it was also like an art gallery and it's, I think where, uh, Andrew Oldham met Marianne faithful every, oh, wow. you know, it's like, and Barry miles knew everybody and he was part of all of the scenes. So, you know, if you wanted to talk to someone, he just rang them up and uh, so they went, eh, you know, this, this guy, he's, he's all that we need, but tell you what, give us a number where we can reach you. And if something comes up, we'll be in touch. You know? Yeah. You know, right, don't yeah. Call it. So I gave him the number of the film company and I get over there. I'm working for this like awful company. They're, they weren't that mean to me. They just, they weren't nice. They yeah. just, you know, I was like, you know, 
we need something, send him. Right, I, was, yeah. I was the gopher. Yeah. And I was pretty disillusioned because this was not swing in London. Yeah. And so about 10 days in, the phone rings and, uh, you know, someone goes, hey, is, is that kid's name Brian? He goes, yeah. I said, okay, tell him to make it fast. And I get on the phone and it's uh, Peter Stafford, who's the editor of Crawdaddy. Okay. He goes, hey, Brian. He starts talking to me as if like, like we're old friends <laughs> and starts asking me about clubs that I haven't been to and parties that no one invited me to <laughs> and records I haven't heard. And I'm just basically agreeing to everything. He goes, oh yeah, that's a, yeah, sure. Mm -hmm. and, and after about 10 minutes, he gets around to going, so listen, we got a problem. Barry Miles is moving back to New York. He's going to write a biography of Allen Ginsberg. Oh, wow. We need a London editor. You want to be our London editor? Oh, my and God. My qualifications were that I was in London. <laughs> that was my only qualification. Then oh also God. the fact that I was a total pushover. He never offered me any money. Oh, no. <laughs> he basically said, hey, can we have you as our London editor? And I was like, sure. Oh, are my. you kidding? And so I was suddenly the London editor of this very cool magazine that nobody in London had ever heard of. Oh, wow. But, you know, it was a time when basically they sent me a press pass and I could get in any place. Oh, my gosh. So, you know, the first concert that I went to, I got in free. Oh, and what show and it was, was it? Fun. Uh, it was well, it was a big show. The opening act was Elton John. Oh, um, the, the middle act was Argent. Wow. Uh, and I got some stories about, about Rod Argent and the zombies <laughs> later, if you want. Yeah. Um, and, and then Father and Gay. And Father and Gay was Sandy Denny's band after Fairport. Right. And so, you know, I, I went backstage and I, I just walked up to her and started. I don't know how I had the balls to do that because I don't <laughs> think I could do it now. But I just started telling her because I saw that like she, like the band didn't move. Okay. It was really static, and she would close her eyes when she sang. Oh. And, and she was mesmerizing, but she was very shy. She was very withdrawn, but her voice communicated everything. And her yeah. voice was so powerful, and it was so emotional. You know, I, I basically went up and introduced myself and said, you know, it's wild seeing you, like, play music this way. You're taking it so seriously. It was like you were in a laboratory with other scientists. And, you know, you were conducting an experiment. You weren't putting on a show. You were conducting an experiment, seeing, you know, what could be brought forth. And she was like, yes. And wow. I said, you know, I saw the band, you know, the group, the band, mm -hmm. in New York a few months ago. And they were really similar. They didn't move. They didn't jump up and down. They just were deep inside the music. It had that same sense of gravity. Yeah. It was like, oh, I wish I had been there. What songs did they play? Oh, and I started yeah. telling her and she was like, do you want to come over and have tea tomorrow? And I was like, yeah. <laughs> so basically, um, I started going around and she'd play me demos of, of other people and she'd show me what she was doing. Oh, and, wow. um, and, you know, what, again, one of the things that was wild about that, that period was 
people didn't go out of their way to find the best players. You know, if someone had a gig, they would call up someone that they wanted to go drinking with afterwards. (laughs) Or someone who had a car, you know, (laughs) it's one or the other. (laughs) So basically, she would invite me along when she would get asked to to, uh, sing on people's records and she would bring me along to sing harmonies with her. Oh, wow. And that was, you know, it was such an education because her pitch was so true and mine was so wobbly. <laughs> but, you know, again, it didn't matter. They, they basically they positioned me in such a way that I would be a background sound. I wouldn't be a featured vocalist. Oh, wow. Um, and no one seemed to care. You know, I mean, I'd sing something and I'd be a little off and they wouldn't say, man, you're flat. You know, that's all. They sort of go, oh, you know, seems like you like to approach the notes from the south side, don't you? (laughs) (laughs) That's that's the most amazing way I've ever heard that being put. What a generous way of putting it. What a way of making me feel like I wasn't a total asshole. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) But she, you know, she had this um, sort of thing inside her where, you know, she was an amazing hostess. She was kind and generous and was really um, very, very approachable and very, very keen on understanding people and what they were going through. But she also drank quite a lot and there were bottles all around her, you know, her flat. Yeah. And some, somewhere around, you know, you didn't know when it would be, but somewhere around the fifth or the seventh or the twelfth drink, something would change. And she would get angry and sad, and she'd get nostalgic, but it'd be like nostalgic for someone else's past. Oh, wow. And at moments like that, um, if you got her talking, she went down a rabbit hole uh, of, of real sorrow and real um, regret oh, because she gosh. had, she had a, a lot of, of um, weird boyfriends. I mean, I think she um, made a lot of bad choices, but if you got her singing, she, she could start just singing acapella or singing with a little guitar. It's wonderful, you know, old Irish songs and old folk oh, songs. Wow. Do you know the McPeak family? No. Uh, there's a great group from Northern Ireland, from uh, like Belfast. Okay. And they were a big influence on like Van Morrison, on Bob Dylan. Okay. Definitely on the Incredible String Band. Like the, the String Band based a lot of their sorts of harmonies on them. Oh, okay. Um, and, but they would go into these melodies that went back to the 17th and 18th centuries. Oh, wow. And um, they would start out singing words and then it would feel... Like somewhere along the second or third verse, it felt like they'd start singing almost in tongues. Oh, wow. It felt, it felt like they were going into like sort of trance speak. And uh, she could do that. She, wow. and, and you can feel that on a lot of her records. Not her solo records, but the stuff that she did with Fairport. Yeah. You know, when you hear like she moves through the fair. Oh, it's my favorite. Oh. Last night she came.
she does that uh, beautiful song that Richard Thompson wrote, Farewell, Farewell. It just feels like she goes to a place where it's almost before music started. It's almost like it's, it's like a, a weird ceremony and it's uh, very, wow. very powerful. And, and, and her voice, it, I don't know, there, there, it's, her, to me, her voice is what that era sounded like. It, 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 I don't even, God, I'm such, I'm so not a writer. That's for, <laughs> yes, yes, you are. It, her voice is, when I think of that time and, and even all the female amazing uh, women vocalists and all, her voice is what sticks out to me that is defining that time as far as the female well, it, sound. I think it's not just the voice, but I think it was her whole approach because, you know, the, I think there were people who had maybe technically better voices, but what she had was this uh, sensibility where when she would sing something like, you know, Maddie Groves, you know, it, it, it wasn't like she was excavating like an, an old folk song. It felt like she was telling you something she'd heard on the way back from shopping. That's it. Yes. You know, it was, it was like, it was gossip and it was like, it was dirty gossip from the street. And it was like, it wasn't, you know, this thing of, oh, this like pristine thing. It was like, oh, her dress got torn and it got dirty. And, you know, you wouldn't believe what, what this sort of shoe she was wearing. And, you know, that yes. slut. And, you know, it was like, it was, um, yes, it wasn't yeah, it was, an old song to her. It was so present and it was so alive. And uh, yeah, it, she just could do that. And I don't think she knew. I don't think she knew what she was. I don't mean that she was that innocent, but she would just go someplace and it would come out of her Man. and it was yeah. pure and strong and she knew the effect it had on people, but I don't think she knew how she got there. Wow. And I, I heard that a lot of her stuff was destroyed in that fire, that universal fire in, in 08. That's, that's a, such a shame. I, I hope not, but I mean, I think there've been so many uh, box sets and, also, I mean, I think, you know, she had a couple of protectors. I think Joe Boyd kept an eye on a lot of her stuff. And I, I think, I think there are people who, who held on to tapes and held on to cassettes and, you know, maybe they're not pristine, but I think you can hear the music. You can, yeah. you can hear what was there. All right. I have some questions for you about your music. How, when did you start? getting back into doing your own music. Were, were you writing music the entire time that you're actually, you're writing articles and, and all? Yeah, I was. I mean, look, I, um, I started playing little clubs in New York in the late seventies. Okay. And, um, for a minute, I got a lot of attention and a lot of people came out to hear me. There was a club called JP's. Okay. Uh, an amazing place. I mean, just, it was a celebrity club in that they had, um, they had really beautiful underage waitresses <laughs> and the bartenders had really amazing cocaine behind the bar. <laughs> and if you were, if you worked for a record company, didn't matter what you did. If you worked for a record company, you could have a tab there and you could put cocaine on your tab. Oh my God. So everybody was there. And, um, uh, it was, it was just an amazing scene. 
and that became, you know, my home. I was brought there by a, a wonderful friend, a really amazing singer you should know of uh, named Nick Holmes. And, you know, Nick introduced me to the place and, and Nick was sort of the prince of Greenwich Village at the time. Okay. And I mean, he was such a, a big deal that, you know, if he, he sang one or two of my songs and the fact that he was singing stuff of mine meant people would hire me without my having to audition. Wow. They'd be like, oh, Nick's doing out. Yeah, come on in. Um, wow. So for about, for about 10 minutes, I was a big deal. <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, a, a couple of record labels wanted to sign me, but what they wanted was weird. And I sort of figured, well, if, if, they, want, if they want me, someone else will. Uh, and it turned out I was wrong. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I sort of slipped away and the, the scene changed. And I, I put a band together uh, and it turned out it was a really good band. And it turned out it was a really good band almost despite me. Oh, really? You know, <laughs> well, the thing is that I'm a really wonderful band leader, meaning... I'm really good at making phone calls and, 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 and booking gigs and writing postcards, sending out invitations to people. Um, but I was really terrible at telling people what to do. Oh. You know, I sort of got everyone in a room and sort of went, well, and then I'd, I'd play them some of my songs. And I, I was the leader because I was the one who wrote the songs because no one else really had the ambition to do that. But, um, I would sort of go, now, why don't we do this? And they'd all look at me and go, no, no, no. You go up there and sing and we'll figure it out. <laughs> and, and they would come up with wonderful arrangements. Uh, and these were all really amazing musicians. Uh, do you remember the Gang of Four? Yes, yes. So Sarah, Sarah Lee, who was the bass player in the Gang of Four, played bass with me. Oh, wow. Uh, and Steve Holly, who had been the last drummer with Wings, was yes. our drummer. And then Joy Askew, uh, who wound up uh, playing with Peter Gabriel and then with uh, Laurie Anderson, um, played keyboards. Uh, and there was a wonderful guitarist, uh, Larry Saltzman. Who's, yes, yes. Um, and Larry was in something called the Love of Life Orchestra. Okay. Uh, and then he became like Paul Simon's guitarist for a while. Okay, yeah, that's, um, that's how I remember that name. Um, so these were wonderful players. And we wound up, um, we wound up turning into a really good band, you know, despite all my efforts to sabotage. <laughs> and we got, we got signed to Sony and we got signed to what they considered a baby deal. I mean, now it would be like, you know, superstar, but at that time it was like, you know, yeah, yeah, we'll do a record with you. Um, you know, now, you know, here's a bus pass. Um, <laughs> but the thing is the guy who signed us, what a great name. The guy, the guy who signed us was named Bob Feinagle. Oh my God. <laughs> uh, uh, um, and, and Bob was famous or he was at least accepted at Sony cause he had signed Charday. So uh, he had some, he had some clout yeah. and he signed us. And the band was called OK Savant. Okay. Yeah. So basically we're, we're waiting to start our record and Bob Feinagle gets fired. Oh. And, um, so we get passed from desk to desk to desk and no one knows what to do with us. 
Uh, and the, you know, the new head of A&R, I can't remember who it was, but basically sort of went, oh, this isn't really a band. This is like a bunch of session guys. Right. And it's like, well, actually this is my band and we've been together for four years and we play together. And, you know, I think we did what I think most smart bands at that time did, which was like, okay, I'm writing the songs, but we're going to share in the royalties. You know, it's yeah. like, I, I write the songs, but you guys do the arrangements. We all, if, if it works, we all make some money. Right. And so everyone was really committed to this, but the people at Sony essentially went, nah, this isn't real. Oh my and God. And so they had us do some showcases and the showcases actually were really good. Uh, and, you know, we could be dependent upon if, if it was like a really important show, we could be dependent upon to mess up. But we, we actually played really well to the point where other labels started bidding for us. Oh, wow. But, but Sony didn't, didn't want us, but they didn't want to let us go. Oh, geez. So um, Sarah Lee wound up joining the B-52s. Uh, Steve Holly wound up uh, joining Macy Gray's band. Larry Saltzman went off, um, I guess, with Paul Simon again. And... Um, you know, I was, I was sort of left, uh, trying to figure out what I was going to do. Oh, geez. Um, you know, so I, I wound up producing some records. I wound up, um, doing a lot of writing. I basically got involved in writing about world music, mostly because, um, I felt it was really inappropriate to write about artists that I might want to produce or that I might want to show songs to. Oh, okay. um, I, I sort of thought that was a conflict of interest, not realizing that the entire music industry is one big conflict of interest. <laughs> but, you know, I sort of felt like you had to keep a really clear line. Yeah. But I discovered that, uh, you know, I fell into an amazing world. Uh, and I fell into a world where, you know, in Western pop, you'd go and talk to somebody about what they were doing and they treat you like, you know, you were really lucky if they talked to you for 15 minutes. Yeah. Like, like, you know, you were, you were a nuisance to them. Right. Yeah. But if you, if you went to some of the people who were really at the top in Senegal or in Morocco or um, in Algeria and you asked them about their music, they were so excited that someone from the West was paying attention. Oh yeah. Oh, I'm sure that, that they would like, basically they would break down the beats for you. Wow. Uh, and they would, they would take you in their car and drive you to the village where they had first learned how to do a certain style of singing. Oh my gosh. So, you know, it was a real education and it was, you know, I was really treated so well by, I don't, I don't know if you know who Sheb Haled is, but, uh, you should. Is okay. um, an artist from Algeria who's sort of, we'll put it this way, um, in the mid nineties, mm -hmm. he had the number one record in Egypt, in Jordan, in Brazil, in Israel, in Jeez. Saudi Arabia. Although his his albums had never act, weren't actually released there. Oh wow! <laughs> but he, you know, he would his records would sell millions of copies but it would all be bootlegs and all pirated. Oh, wow. Um, but, um, you know, I mean, he, 
I learned so much traveling around with him and, and uh, working with him. Um, and I helped record an album with him with Don Was in L.A. about 1993. Oh, cool. Uh, Uh, just an amazing, amazing character. And uh, he came to New York, by the way. And he played a big concert at the Beacon Theater about two weeks after 9-11. Oh, my God. And, um, and you know, here's a Muslim with, a, you know, a predominantly Muslim audience playing a concert in New York. And they had police everywhere because they were really worried that he was going to be attacked or that there would be an incident. Right. And yeah. he pushed all the police away and he let the audience all come up on the stage and dance with him. Oh, wow. And, you know, his whole attitude was, someone wants me, they can have me. Oh, but my God. Between now and then, I'm just, I'm, I'm going to sing for these people. And, uh, and beautiful. his stuff is so beautiful, you know, and his stuff is so dark. You know, I wound up, like, translating some of his songs because I, you know, he spoke French and I can speak a little French. Oh, so, okay. But his stuff, you know, he sings a type of music called rye, which is like a, it's like a Middle Eastern reggae. Oh, wow. Um, but it's, it's also, it's got its roots in blues. Like every Mediterranean culture has a, their own version of the blues. Like in Greece, it's from Bedeka. In Turkey, it's Arabesque. It's, wow. it's something that, that it's, it's a fundamental cry about, uh, about loss and about pain and about the fact that, you know, you're, you're in a position in your life that is unsustainable, but what else can you do? That's There's no way. So when he would have these songs and the lyrics are so, you know, so dark, you know, the lyrics of one song essentially start out, you know, not that long ago, I was poor and, and young and, and, and lonely. I had nothing. Now I'm old and I still have nothing. Oh, wow. <laughs> that's, you know, um, that's incredible because you think of, you, you talk to musicians and I, I talk to mostly Western musicians and actually I think it's been exclusively Western musicians and everybody will agree you know, the blues is universal in, in music, but you narrowly think in our terms, in rock terms and and yeah. pop terms and you know, everything can go back to the blues but you don't think of blues as a universal term a, 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 like of a, a middle eastern blues a turkish blues you don't i've never thought of that before well it's not it's not necessarily like a 12 bar blues right right but it's it's a form of music where you know, essentially, the audience knows what to expect. They know where the changes are going to be. Right. And the performers know so that essentially someone coming into a scene from a different city can adapt and can walk in, you know, in the same way that, that someone here could, you know, jump into a Muddy Waters song. Yeah, you yeah. Do, you could do that there. Yeah, it, it's, it's a universal 
type of music in each culture. Yeah. And it's a way out of no way out. You know, it's, it's an acknowledgement that essentially there's no place to go, but then, you know, and here we are. Yeah. Wow. And, and speak, okay. So speaking of, of unique talents that you've played with, you've, you've done work with one of my favorite guitarists of all time, Vernon Reed. How did you meet up with Vernon? Vernon, um, Damn, but early on, uh, I mean, Vernon's a really dear friend. It was his birthday a couple of days ago. Yeah, so I follow uh, him on, on I, I Instagram. Gotta, I got to call him. Um, <laughs> Tell him I said, hey. So, um, <laughs> so I went to, um, I didn't go out to a lot of jazz gigs, but uh, I went out to, uh, there was a club called 7th Avenue South. And I, I, I went out to, um, to hear uh, uh, Ronald Shannon Jackson. Oh, okay. And... Um, you know, it was the, uh, it was the last set. It was probably two in the morning and, uh, they were stretching out and, you know, I was, you know, I was having a beer. I was listening. It's, it's pretty good. You know, I mean, it was better than pretty good, but it wasn't my scene at all. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, at some point, like a little switch went on and the guitarist just opened up in a way that stopped me in my tracks. And I, I basically, did a double take and I just started watching and he just went into another dimension. Wow. He was playing, I mean, he was playing jazz, but he was taking it into sort of a Hendrix, uh, location. Yes. Uh, and he was playing the, the actual electricity. It's like he was, he, he, he'd gotten to a place where he wasn't playing notes. He was playing like pure energy and oh, it, it absolutely floored me. And, um, that was the last song they played. And I, I went up to him as he was packing up and leaving and sort of went, man, you know, that was so beautiful. And so that was lovely. I, I'd love to do some work with you at some point. And he was like, oh yeah, sure. And, uh, he wrote down his name and phone number and then he walked out of the club and I was like looking at it going, man, Vernon Reed, I, I've got to. I've got to track him down. That's so great. And two minutes later, he came running back in with, wait, 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 let me have that paper. And I was really afraid that he was going to tear it up. <laughs> you know, yeah. I'm not going to give that to you. Yeah. Um, what was I thinking? He, you know, he took the paper and next to his name, he wrote guitar. <laughs> like, like I was really going to forget. <laughs> and, it's like, and it was like, yeah. Um, and, um, you know, basically, um, I rang him up and we didn't really get to playing for quite a while. We just got to be friends and, uh, he would come and, and hang out at my place and he was living, I think he was still living with his uh, mother in Brooklyn. So if we went to hear some music, he would sometimes stay over at my place, uh, in the East village. Oh, wow. Um, and then I, I got, um, I got held hostage and uh, in an elevator and uh oh my you know god held up um and i got freaked i was worried about going back to my building so i wound up moving into a loft on 19th street and you know the the guy who had it was going away on a film shoot and he gave me the place and vernon was between things and he was all excited about the loft so we wound up like uh, staying there for a few weeks and we started playing some music there. Uh, and then yeah. when Larry, when Larry Saltzman had to go away, 
uh, Vernon filled in and played guitar with uh, OK Savant. And uh, I mean, he just took us to a whole other level. studio work together. I played on uh, one of his records, a record, uh, Mistaken Identity. Yes. Amazing uh, album. I play Marxophone on that. Oh, um, okay. And uh, Marxophone being an instrument that I own and that people call me because I own it, not because I'm any good at it. <laughs> <laughs> so, what is, uh, okay, what is a Marxophone? Marxophone is a zither with a little keyboard attachment, uh-huh. and so it, it it stutters a bit, and it sounds a bit like um, like a radiator having fits. <laughs> it's uh, no, but it does. It sounds like um, a, a, quite a lot like a hammer dulcimer. Okay, but it, it, for some reason, because of the way that uh, it's built, it, it's um, it, it doesn't sound folky. It sounds almost electronic. There's a uh-huh. buzz. There's a buzz to it. It sounds both African and electronic. Oh wow! And uh, so I wound up again because because they're hard to find. Uh, I, I played on a, a record of Aldi Miola's and played on a, a group called Lost Tropics and oh played on a bunch of things with it. And Jeez. it was really funny. I was, uh, you know, I, I was trying to explain some of what I had done to Taj Mahal after the Lucinda session. I uh, said, yeah, I did that. And I, you know, uh, played marxophone, uh, you know, for Aldi Miola. Uh, you know, you know about the marxophone? And he just went, yeah. <laughs> I played marxophone on the First Doors album on the Whiskey Bar. And I was like, I think I'll go in the other room now. And, uh, <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> I never knew. Gosh, I must have never read the liners. I have, I had no idea. You I did don't that. even know if he's listed, but yeah, he's he's on there doing that. Oh um, my god! Wow. Right, so I have to, I have to get into your your new album. I have to ask you some questions about that. So let me backtrack for a minute. Oh yeah, and yeah. We'll get there, which is that um, you know I sort of stepped away from music and then, uh, or stepped away from my own music. And then a friend of mine had a studio in New Orleans and invited me down. And I recorded a batch of songs down there with uh, some great players. Okay. And, um, you know, we, we almost had it all wrapped up. You know, we had done, um, you know, about eight or nine songs. And uh, I don't remember what happened, but I sort of slipped away from the sessions and came back to New York. And I, a lot of, a lot of, personal stuff was going on that was uh, upsetting. My mother was uh, doing really badly. Oh. And I was sort of wound up as a like, full-time caregiver. And I, I stopped really thinking about my own music. And then around, I guess around 10 years ago, I got a call from uh, sort of this wacky music manager who would, you know, 
been really kind to me at different times who had heard some of the stuff from New Orleans. And he was working with a little label out of Minneapolis and just said, you know, why don't I put out your New Orleans record? And I was, you know, I thought, great, man, that would be so much fun. I'd love to have that out. Yeah. And, and I went back and listened to it and um, something just felt wrong. Uh, hmm. You know, it felt like it was, for, it was a different person. Oh, wow. Okay. And I started sort of going, well, okay, maybe it's a different person, but so what if you made a record now? What would that be? And I started thinking, okay, like all of the songs that I was writing before had this, had me as a persona where I was sort of an adolescent, you know, I was sort of like looking out the window of what, what my life was going to be. Right. And I'm actually now in the midst of my life, you know, what would it be like to write from the perspective of somebody who's got a mortgage, you know, somebody, right, yeah. who to, somebody who has to get up in the morning and take their kid to school yeah. and, and, and not only do that, but have to do it the next day as well. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and so I started like writing some songs that felt like they were from that persona and they felt like they were more real. They felt like they weren't you know, like, hey, baby, but they were sort of like, a, hey, Mr. Accountant. You know? yeah. <laughs> um, and um, I've been hanging out a lot with uh, musicians who had a band called Olabel. Oh, and uh, yes. a wonderful, wonderful band. Uh, and they were all really dear friends. And essentially, Olabel backed me up and I made a record, you know, really fast uh, at Philip Glass's studio. Oh, wow. And... You know, it, it was it was a little rough, but uh, it felt it felt pretty good. And I found a label called Sunnyside. Really nice people. Mo again, mostly they were doing jazz, but they um, seemed to like me, and they seemed to like what I was doing. Okay. So they offered to put it out and promote it a little bit, and um, it came out, I guess, around uh, 2010. And I wound up doing another record, maybe five years later, six years later. Uh, and this time it felt like I was a little more in control and it was, it was also a little looser, you know, it right. felt, it felt like it was a little more natural. Okay. And that all leads to this, you know, this record, um, you know, this record I started about three years ago and uh, a guy who had been part of Olabel and who'd worked with me on um, the second record very closely. So wonderful guitarist named Jimmy Zhivago. Yes. Uh, and Jimmy's was, was um, really pivotal for me. It was really important in that uh, we had a lot of the same reference points. Okay. Um, you know, in that I could basically play a, a lick from a Bo Brummel song and he would know the song. Oh, wow. And, uh, <laughs> So we, we both had a real fascination with, with the Stones, but with a period of the Stones that I think gets overlooked, which is, you know, my favorite record of theirs is Between the Buttons. Oh, uh, okay. And that's, that's one where Brian Jones was really, you know, pretty much in control. And he was defining a lot of the sound and a lot of the, the feeling. Yeah. And um, so we started, you know, crafting a record together and... Uh, working on the arrangements together and doing a lot of stuff playing live in the studio. 
And, um, you know, the record just came to life in a way that nothing I've ever worked on uh, did, where it just, it just was uh, levitating. And I've, I've been around other people when they've been able to do that. And I've been maybe part of those sessions, but it's never been my material or, or me at, at the focus. Right. And suddenly this was like my stuff. And it was stuff that, I mean, I don't know how to say this, but it was, I was doing stuff that I might even listen to. And <laughs> well, that's good. I wasn't used to that. Yeah. <laughs> um, and um, so we, we had this record that just was... Uh, out of control and it was there was such a great energy and jimmy was playing a beautiful guitar and the thing is he's always been a great guitarist but he's always second guessed himself mm. so he'd play something amazing and then he'd go no 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 i can do that better oh wow and so you'd have to sit around and wait for him to like fumble for two hours before <laughs> going oh actually the first one was pretty good <laughs> and um you know, the, the thing that was devastating uh, was we were working on the last song and uh, he left his session a little bit early. He wasn't feeling good. Yeah. And, um, and then I, I found out from a mutual friend that he was in hospital. Um, oh. And this was like two days later. It's not like, you know, time had gone by. Yeah. And uh, he, he had been... Um, feeling really poorly and uh, he had gone in for some tests and they had found that uh, his uh, white cell count was was really low and oh, they wow. decided to, to you know put him in uh, the uh, the langone wing of uh, the hospital at nyu but uh, they gave him some medication to try to boost his immune system but it was the wrong medication for him oh um, because he had had uh, years of serious drinking and drug abuse he'd yeah. been sober for a long time but he had damaged his liver and this particular uh, medication i believe it's called zirtiga uh is contraindicated for anyone with any liver problems oh. and the, the medication that they gave him shut down his liver oh wow and uh, so you know basically um I was with him every day in the hospital and he, he was so uh, intent on getting out because he had been a pivotal member of Olabel and Olabel had broken up, but they were reforming for a special concert at city winery. Okay. And, and he was the one who would really put that concert together. So he was like, man, even if I'm in a wheelchair, I'm going to be there. And um, so he was totally focused on getting out. And I brought a guitar up to the hospital and, Oh, wow. Um, you know, we'd sit there all day and I'd play, play him the tapes of what I was working on. And um, it, uh, it, it, turned, it turned bad. And, um, you know, basically they tried to jumpstart his liver with, um, I don't know, certain steroids. And instead of uh, getting his, his liver back, it, it shut down his kidneys. Oh, and, um, Jeez. So, um, he, he passed away, um, uh, about 10 days after he'd been in and oh it, it, it shocked all of us. I mean, we were, a lot of us, you know, who loved him were there with him and people were singing for him. People were really right there with him, but 
you know, it, it, it knocked all of us for a loop and I couldn't, yeah. um, I couldn't go back to the record. I, I basically, you know, put it aside. I wound up uh, going off to Lisbon and doing some work with a group over there uh, and performing and recording in Portugal, which was wild. Oh, that uh, the also Rua das Pretas? Exactly. Uh, and there were, you know, beautiful people and it was great energy and it was yeah. a way for me to avoid thinking about uh, Jimmy and my own yeah. record. And then really just before the pandemic hit, um, uh, I gathered a couple of friends and went into the studio and finished the record up in a, about three days. Oh, boy. Um, and, well, you know, Jimmy had done all the heavy lifting. Uh, okay. We only had really a little to do. And uh, Glenn Patcha, who uh, was playing with, he was part of Olabel. Uh, he'd been playing with Rod Cooter, and he's just joined Bonnie Raitt's band. Oh, wow. Um, <clears throat> so he came in and did some beautiful harmonies and added keyboards. And he brought in the guitarist named Chris Bruce. And Chris has just moved here from LA. He was playing out there with T-Bone Burnett and Sam Phillips and oh, uh, cool. uh, Michelle and Uh And he has a great knack for playing, for playing stuff that you can't hear, but you can feel. Wow. Um, I I feel like I'm going to have to edit out a whole lot of me going, wow. In this yeah, episode. don't. Actually, just edit all your wows together. <laughs> just make it one big, long wow. Um, and so Chris played these beautiful parts, and it'd be like, it's really good, but what is it? And yeah. you couldn't quite hear it. But if you took it out, you'd really miss it, because he had this ability to make everybody else sound good really generous player that's amazing um and basically um you know my friend hector mixed the record hector has sort of been my secret weapon apart from jimmy for for years hector is a musician and engineer who moved here from venezuela and um i met him at philip glass's studio and when i met him he was sort of an assistant up there and uh, you know within about a year he was running the joint and he was producing and, you know, you look at his, uh, oh, he won five, he won five Grammys a couple of years ago. So that's um, is it Hector Castillo. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I mean, Hector just is, um, a monster. Well, he's worked with very Bowie and Bjork and Lou Reed among, uh, like, I'm, among, I'm sure a myriad of others. others. His, his Grammys are all in the Latin rock field. He works with a band that's, yeah. you know, huge in Latin America. Uh, from Argentina called Los Cadillacs Fabulosos. Oh, I know them. Uh, and so he produces all of their stuff and does the arrangements. Okay. Okay. And, uh, um, so, you know, I was really lucky enough to stumble into him and he's been part of everything I've recorded for the past 10 years and, you know, love him to pieces. He's in Ecuador <laughs> right now recording somebody or other and can't <laughs> wait for him to be back. So um, the album is, is, titled winter clothes and you being a writer there and i'm sure there's got to be some kind of meaning behind the, the title well yeah there isn't there isn't you know it's um i mean partly there's a photo on the cover that i took uh at uh, halloween in our courtyard where this little girl who was just covered in uh light emitting light emitting devices 
walked in uh, and she just looked like something from the futurist Arabian Nights. Yes. Have you seen the cover? It's just I have. So, so perfect. And it is. I wanted to use that. And so, you know, winter clothes seemed right. Okay. But I've also just sort of used that image in two different songs that are both really important to me. One song that's on this album uh, called Down, 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 yeah. uh, you know, where the last verse is, you know, heaven knows these winter clothes are torn and caked with blood. And if I could, I surely would get out of them for good. I love and that line. Heaven knows these winter clothes are torn and caked with blood. And if I could, I surely would get out of them for good. And it's down, 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 I'm falling. Also, I had written uh, a song with a friend of mine in Lisbon. He had played me this melody, and I was so knocked out by it that I just insisted on putting my fingerprints on it. Um, and I, I have a line in there, you know, the girls walk by all dressed in winter clothes, going to all the places winter goes. And I love that song, and I love that line. And uh, so it seemed like a good title. It's recurring to the, that, that sounds. Yeah. That's good enough it seems reason. like it. Well, I guess, you know, titles find you. Yeah. If you have to, if you have to look for them, you're, you're doing the wrong thing. I think you have to let them find you and then just accept them. Well, the album has a really great, I want to say early mid seventies feel to it in the songwriting and, and the tones of the instrument. Did you use a vintage vintage instruments and vintage recording equipment to do any of this stuff? You know, we, we, we used whatever was there, to be honest. I mean, okay. it was very, a lot of it was really casual. I think the first song we recorded, you know, was really like the garage rock uh, band. It was a wrong birthday. Oh, uh, that's, that, that's a great, that had a real Stonesy sound to it. You know, we, we, we were all trying to figure out it was just Hector behind the, the controls and uh, Jimmy and Byron and me. And, uh, you know, Jimmy can play drums a little bit. I can play a little bit, but I had to sing. So it was like Byron sort of got behind there. And uh, he was really nervous because he thought it was really too loose. But I thought it was great. It was, the drums were just right. Oh, it sounds um, fantastic. And uh, again, it was like, it feels like it's an outtake from between the buttons. It feels like yeah. it's like the B side of a stone single that, you know, we've all forgotten. I'll tell you uh, another song to me that sounds like a, a, an outtake, not a stone's outtake, but Killing the Dead to me sounds like it could be something off, off of a Peter Gabriel album.
comes at an end The hands of the clock start to bend Time passes slowly That's what she said Well, it could be, or, you know, to me it sort of sounds like like the Who playing Buddy Holly. Oh, okay. I didn't think of it that way. But, but yeah, Peter Gay, I mean, I love Peter. And uh, I spent time with him at his studio in Bath. And he's one of the loveliest people, really talented, who surrounds himself with such assholes. Really? You know, he has such goons and such real creeps that, that work for him. Uh. And, you know, I, I don't understand it because he's, he's a total gentleman and they're thugs. But, oh, I hate to hear that. But killing, killing the dead is—that's uh, the last song that we recorded. That's the one we were uh-huh. working on okay. um, when Jimmy went in uh, the hospital, and uh, got Sid Strahd doing the uh, harmonies with me. And we've worked together for years and years. Do you know Sid? Uh, I heard the name, but I'm not. She, um, she was part of the group, the Golden Palominos. Okay, uh, that's. So she was the singer in the Palominos and okay. she sang with, with R.E.M. for a while and with Ricky Lee Jones. And okay, that's where it sounds familiar. She just brings such a great spirit and such a great energy to everything. And then there's this wonderful uh, Irish singer that's my friend uh, named Mary, Mary Askew. Yes. And, and she's doing this weird little hiccups at the end. Which, I was uh, going to ask you about that. I, wonder, I love that. I do too. <laughs> Jimmy hated it. He kept sort of going, I'm just, just like, put them those. No, I want those. Oh, I'm glad you uh, kept them because I, that, that to me is, is also another reason why it sounds a little, little uh, bit like a Peter Gabriel song. Yeah, I, I guess. Um, you know, I, I'm a magpie. I'm influenced by everybody. And I'll, I'll take whatever is there. And, <laughs> but also, I mean, I'm influenced by, but I can't necessarily imitate people. So, you know, I'll try to play Buddy Holly and I'll wind up sounding like Sammy Davis Jr. <laughs> and, you know, I just have to live with that. Yeah, that's good, though, because it's not an out and out copy. You know, you're, you're it, like you said, it's just an influence. Yeah. And it's I mean, none of it's none of it's hidden. None of it's I'm not trying to uh, hide any of it. It's, uh, you know, my record collection is on my sleeve. Yeah. <laughs> so. You re-recorded As a Man Gets Older, because that was on your, uh, your prior album, All Fires the Fire. Well, that, yeah, that was sort of, you know, when I talked about um, making that record in New Orleans yeah. and wanting to do something that felt more like what my life is now, that's the song that I wrote that sort of put, put me back into you know, songwriting and playing. Okay. Okay. And, um, that's one of the first songs that I recorded with Hector and with Glenn and, you know, with all of the guys, uh, on all fires, the fire, but I never felt like I nailed it. I mean, I felt like everybody else sounded great, but I felt like I was, I felt like I was reading off a cheat sheet. Okay. I just, I just sort of felt like it wasn't, I wasn't there. And so on this, on this version of it, it doesn't sound that different, but I feel different. I feel like, okay, this is, um, I, I relaxed into it and it feels like the song that I wanted it to be. Oh, that's good. I'm going to ask you one more question because you mentioned this earlier. You said you had a good Rod Argent story. Oh, well, let's, 
<laughs> is that for the podcast or is that for some other? Oh yeah, yeah, no, sure. Okay. Uh, my only my only fear is I, my 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 battery is running really low, but um, we can wrap it up very quickly then. Well, no, but let me let me try to tell you this because it's sure. um, so I was really sort of around 1978 when I I was still playing at uh, JP's and I was. People had been interested in me. There were a lot of people looking around, but I sort of felt like I needed to, to jumpstart my career into another league. And I wanted to find a record producer who, who would work with me. And one of the people I really liked uh, was this guy, Paul Samuel Smith. Oh, yeah. Uh, and now Paul had been the um, bass player in the Yardbirds. Yeah. But then he'd gone on to produce uh, Cat Stevens. And I loved the sound of those Cat Stevens records. Yeah. I loved the sound of the guitarist, uh, Alan Davies. And those records were really warm and intimate. Oh, yeah. And, and I wrote to him and uh, I sent him a couple of songs that I was doing. And he wrote back a really nice note and said, you know, I like this and this could be really good. Um, I don't want to commit to anything, but if you can come to London, I'll go in the studio and try out a few songs with you and see if uh, we can connect. Oh, wow. So I was over the moon, yeah. you know, and so I called friends of mine and I, I hooked up a place that I could stay and I got to London and I called Paul Samuel Smith and, um, he wasn't around. Oh, um, he, he had gone off on holiday and um, no one had any idea when he'd be back. And I was like, well, but he knows I'm coming. And he was like, the secretary was like, well, I don't know that. Yeah. And um, so, you know, every day I would call and every day they got more and more frustrated. And every day I was getting more and more frustrated because I'm in London staying on a friend's couch and yeah. I don't know what I'm going to do. And um, finally, uh, this secretary just was really blunt with me and said, listen, Paul's in Spain. When he finishes taking a holiday, he's in the studio with Cat Stevens for the next three weeks. And then he's booked to do, you know, a million things. And he doesn't have time for you. You're not, you're not on his radar. Right. Oh. And I was so disappointed and I was so distraught. And uh, a friend of mine was working as uh, an assistant engineer at uh, Trident Studios. Okay. And so I, I just, I wanted to, you know, tell someone about what was going on, someone who'd know and who would commiserate with me. Yeah. And I called him up and he was like, yeah, yeah, come on over here. I'm working on a session for Rory Gallagher, but come, come hang out. So I got over there and... He came out and was really nice and said, listen, I can't invite you in. This is a, you can come hang out in the green room. We're wrapping up this, this track. And uh, when we're finished, we can go and uh, talk. So I'm sitting in the green room and there's a guy in a t-shirt with really long hair reading a music magazine. And he starts chatting with me and, you know, asking if I'm doing some recording. And I sort of go, no. And he goes, well, what are you doing here? And I explained, <laughs> I explained about Samuel Smith. And uh, he goes, oh, man, that sucks. Um, listen, my name's Rod Argent. Um, you know, why don't you play me some of what you're doing? Oh. So we went in the other room. You know, I found a guitar. I played him two or three songs. And he's like, 
listen, I'll go in the studio with you. I can put the zombies together. I can, you know, get Chris White and uh, Colin Blundstone. <laughs> and I'm like, you're kidding. And he's like, no, you know, why don't we do three or four songs and see how it works. And then, we can, you know, after we've done that, we can talk about it. And I was like, wow, I was over the moon. Yeah. So I went by his place the next day. And uh, Colin Blundstone is there and Chris White is there. I've got the zombies like backing me up. This oh is my. like heaven. Yeah. And um, the one thing we don't have is a guitarist. And I really want Richard Thompson. I love Richard Thompson. Oh, yeah. And so I, I know Richard a little bit and I call him up. And Richard was going through a really deep Sufi, Sufi phase. He was very much involved with spiritual work. Okay, and yeah. he, he pulled this routine with me that was just unforgivable. Oh. oh. <laughs> Where, you know, he basically goes, oh, listen, man, because you're my friend, if you ask me to play a session with you, of course I'll play with you. But if you're my friend, you won't ask. Oh. And it's like, it's like a double whammy. And I'm like, oh, shit. Yeah. So I don't, you know, I have all these names of people that I think would be great. You know, Chris Bedding, well, he's out of the country. Alan Davies, well, he's with Cat Stevens. Um, and all the people that Rod Argent wants to bring in are these sort of disco session players. Yeah. He starts playing me people, and I hate them. <laughs> They're all playing these sort of chaka chaka chaka, you know, <laughs> parts. And I'm like, yeah. no, no, no. I want, I want someone that can, like, finger pick like a Strat uh, and make it really bluesy. Yeah. And he doesn't know anyone who's like that. So I'm, I'm really, I'm really depressed. And my friend Valerie that I'm staying with is really annoyed because I, I'm, I've turned into such a drag. <laughs> and she goes, come on, we're, we're going out. We're going to go to the movies. And she takes me to a movie theater called The Everyman in Hampstead. Okay. And we're standing in line. I don't know what we were going to see. We're standing in line. And there's this amazing guitar sound coming out of the ticket booth. And it's like a finger-picked strat, but someone doing really wild, you know, uh, very Delta bluesy things, but really rough and sort of uh, with a punk edge to it. Okay. And I just turn to Val and go, that's my guitarist. She goes, don't be silly. He goes, no, that's my guitarist. That's the sound that I want. I need that. We get up to the booth. Um, and we're buying tickets. Like, so go to the girl who's, excuse me, the woman, um, yeah. who's uh, selling tickets there and go, like, who's that playing? She goes, oh, isn't that great? That's my boyfriend. He's got this great band called Racing Cars. And I'm like, does he play sessions? She's like, do they pay? And I'm like, yeah. She's like, sure. He's <laughs> around. Here's his name. His name is Mark Knopfler. Oh, my God. God. <laughs> Holy shit. <laughs> so Mark Mark came in and played uh, guitar with me with the zombies.
talented and wow. he sounded so good and Rod Argent and Chris White hated him. Oh my God. How can you hate him? It was him? a real, cause they were real upper class kids. They had gone to, you know, public school, which is private. You know, they'd gone to sort of fancy universities there. Yeah. And Mark was sort of blue collar and he was a little rough. And, um, he also, like everyone else that was there, was very precise about what they were playing. Yeah. And he was really like, you know, let's just play, just like barrel through it. Yeah. And so he pissed them off because they basically put me in a position where I had to choose between <laughs> him and them. And I chose him. Oh, you made the right and, choice. Uh, and um, so basically we, we recorded uh, a couple of songs and then they just cut me loose because they didn't want to work with Mark. Oh, man. Now, however, Rod <laughs> and Chris White have been in touch with me and they want to release some of these tracks on um, sort of a Best of the Zombies undercover record that they're putting out. I went to Rod Argent's website and he, like, I have to say, he and Chris were both really sweet with me and lovely and yeah. um, water under the bridge. But you go to Rod Argent's website and the first line is, you know, apart from having founded world-class band, the zombies with, you know, all of these hits, Rod is best known for having discovered Mark Knopfler. Oh <laughs> man. Mm. But there we go. That happens. Yeah. Unfortunately it does. Oh. Um, well, Brian, I know I've kept you here for like almost two hours. I want to Oh, damn. I want to thank um, you for spending so much time with me and tell me. Thank you so much. Oh, and, and, and just tell me the best stories. These are incredible. Well, thank you for listening and for putting up with me. Oh, absolutely. There's no, no putting up with it. I've, I've been fascinated this entire time. I really do thank you f for such a wonderful group of stories. It's been just a pleasure to listen to. Well, the pleasure's been mine, and um, I look forward to it. Let me know when, when it airs, and uh, let me know when we can do it again. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. 
Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any fantasy points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that fantasy points has to offer. That's fantasypoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. Fantasypoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points. 